Welcome back to Rock Band's Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Malaberti. This is a very special episode of Rock Band's Podcast because it's the final episode of the entire Beatles series. It's obviously going to be a pretty tough and even at times depressing episode given the content that we'll be covering, so trigger warning there. Before we begin, uh, I just want to thank everyone who tuned in and supported Rock Band's Podcast since I started it back in February. I've had such a great time getting to know all of you on Instagram, getting your feedback, answering your questions. I have pretty big plans for rock bands, as some of you know. I'm looking forward to covering some of my favorite artists and rock and roll's most important bands like the Rolling Stones, which I'm going to be releasing in a couple months, Uh, Led Zeppelin, The Who, Bob Dylan, The Grateful Dead, David Bowie, The Band, Queen. Uh, Like I said, the, the list is long, so... If you want to keep listening to rock bands, uh, please make sure to follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, follow us on Instagram at Rock Bands Podcast, and share us with all of your rock and roll loving friends. All right, let's get to it. Solo Beatles, the finale. In January of 1976, a year after the Beatles' legal partnership was officially dissolved, another legal milestone divided John, Paul, George, and Ringo even further. Their contract with EMI, the label that signed them in 1962, expired. A day after their recording contract expired, George Harrison signed with his own record company, Dark Horse Records, a subsidiary of A&M. Ringo decided to sign a pretty substantial deal with Polydor Records, and Paul re-signed with EMI, but with a much higher royalty. John Lennon decided not to re-sign a record contract and remain a free agent for the time being. He had some songs, but he didn't really have any immediate plan to release them. The four Beatles all had very well-established and very distinct solo careers. They'd all recorded albums, topped the charts, toured the world, and even started new bands. Yet, around this time, with the minor exception of Paul McCartney, they all became less and less relevant in popular music as solo artists. I mean, they were still big signs for the record company, but sales of their albums started to be kind of the result of a habit rather than an excitement for their new music. A solo Beatles album was no longer the event that it used to be, and it didn't generate the level of interest that other big acts of the era did, especially compared to rock and roll acts of the 1970s like Elton John, Led Zeppelin, Rod Stewart, ELO, Bowie, uh, and there's a bunch of new and -and up-and-coming acts too, like the Eagles, Queen, there's the burgeoning punk rock scene. Even the Beatles' contemporaries, the, the bands that had managed to survive the 60s, like The Rolling Stones, Bob Dylan, The Who, commanded much more attention and enthusiasm. Ironically, though, when John, Paul, George, and Ringo were becoming less and less relevant as solo acts, the Beatles and the fantasy of their reunion were bigger than ever. Every few months, a report would surface that the four had been offered some unbelievable amount of money to do a reunion concert. One concert promoter offered them $50 million for a single concert. I mean, in today's money, that's well over $200 million for a single show. Sid Bernstein, another music promoter, ran a full-page newspaper advertisement begging the Beatles to reunite for a one-off charity show, saying, quote, Today the world seems hopelessly divided. More than ever, we need a symbol of hope for the future. 
Let the world smile for one day, unquote. The event was promised to generate over $200 million, around like a billion in today's money. George Harrison publicly responded to Bernstein's ad saying, quote, The Beatles can't save the world. We'd be lucky if we can save ourselves, unquote. Harrison also added, quote, How about a cup of tea together? Get those four people and just put them in a room to have tea. Satellite it around the world, unquote. That actually sounds like a pretty good podcast idea, to be honest. The most famous offer, however, was for only $3,000, and it was offered by Lorne Michaels, a producer of Saturday Night Live. In 1976, John and Paul were hanging out at John's house at the Dakota in New York City, and the two of them thought for a minute of strolling down to the SNL studio to surprise the cast and to do an impromptu performance and to actually take Lorne Michaels up on his joking offer for a Beatles reunion. Unfortunately, they never actually did this, but three weeks later, George Harrison was the musical guest on SNL to promote his new album, and he participated in a sketch where he was trying to convince Lorne Michaels to give him the three grand that had been promised to the Beatles. Harrison then played a duet of Here Comes the Sun with the one and only Paul Simon, who was hosting Saturday Night Live that week. This is actually really important to the myth of the Beatles. It's this idea of that historic reunion that was always floating around. Every interview they did, they were asked if the Beatles would ever get back together. And they would always give the same answer. Well, maybe if we feel like it or, you know, sometimes I want to and the other guys don't want to. But there was this overwhelming sense that one day the Beatles would put down the boxing gloves and finally get back together for the reunion all their fans had been waiting for. Unfortunately, that reunion never got to happen. Throughout the mid to late 1970s, the Beatles' careers brought them in pretty different directions. Ringo was perhaps the most addicted to the rock and roll lifestyle, and he was spiraling deeper and deeper into alcoholism and spent his seemingly endless amounts of money on cocaine, models, private jets, and gambling in Monte Carlo. He continued to make music, but even he admits that he was way too out of it during this period to have really made anything good. Paul McCartney and Wings kept touring, playing huge stadiums all over the world. In 1976, Paul kept riding his wave of popularity and recorded the album Wings at the Speed of Sound. This album was a bit different than previous Wings albums, with the other members of the band, Denny Lane, Joe English, Jimmy McCullough, and Linda, all contributing heavily to the composition, arrangement, of the album, and they each got to sing lead vocals for at least one track on the album. Now, Wings was still quite popular, especially in the United States, and the album sold well, but critics were pretty disappointed with it, with the exception of one song, the single Silly Love Songs. Silly Love Songs, which is one of the best bass guitar parts of the 1970s, was actually partly a dig at critics. Uh, Paul was often accused of writing shallow, boy-meets-girls love songs, and Paul made a pretty compelling case in the song itself that people actually liked his love songs, and the, the song reached number one in the United States, his fifth chart topper since the Beatles split. In 1977, Paul and Wings had to cancel their plans to tour because Linda became pregnant, so the band began working on their next album, London Down, instead. More trouble came for Wings when both Joe English and Jimmy McCullough quit the band, leaving Paul, Denny Lane, and Linda McCartney to figure out the album by themselves. The album, released in 1978, was another successful seller, and it gave Paul two hits, With a Little Luck and Mull of Kintyre, which was an old Scottish folk song, 
But again, it wasn't that well received by critics. But Paul's band was really starting to spiral in other ways. Paul and Denny filled the two open spots in Wings with the first two people that they auditioned. After playing a couple of blues songs and Chuck Berry numbers, they gave them an offer on the spot. This was a pretty clear indication that Paul, who was generally pretty controlling, was losing interest in the Wings project. In the summer of 1978, the band started recording what would become their last album, Back to the Egg. This is a pretty unenthusiastic album overall, and it's generally considered to be one of the worst things Paul Edward did, but the album still had some highlights, like the really bizarre hit, Good Night Tonight, and a pretty star-heavy song, Rockestra Theme, which Paul invited a bunch of his rock and roll friends to play on to make one big epic-sounding rock song, kind of like a classic rock orchestra. On the session was Pink Floyd's David Gilmore, The Who's Pete Townsend, Led Zeppelin's John Paul Jones and John Bonham, and a bunch of other musicians. The result is a fun song, but nothing to be taken that seriously, and the album kind of just sounds like a bloated 1970s rock excess-laden album. Uh, It still achieved a respectable chart position, sold pretty poorly compared to Paul's previous work, and musically just wasn't really on the level anymore. The final blow to Wings wasn't actually the poor sales of Back to the Egg. In fact, they kept playing live shows and recording after the release of the album in 1979. No, the final blow was the unexpected cancellation of their Japanese tour in 1980, due to Paul's biggest drug bust yet. Already, Wings had a pretty hard time getting into Japan. Considering Paul and Denny's drug records, Japan was pretty conservative, and they made it clear that absolutely no drugs would be tolerated on their soil. Paul and Wings arrived in Japan in January of 1980. They didn't even get out of the airport without getting searched. Now, I don't know if Paul just thought he was too famous to get caught, but pretty much immediately, Japanese law enforcement found 8 ounces of marijuana in Paul McCartney's bag which was a huge offense in Japan. And Paul didn't exactly get the Beatle treatment either. He was put in handcuffs and brought to an actual Japanese jail, where he sat for nine days awaiting his fate in a cell. Eventually, a team of lawyers headed by his father-in-law, Lee Eastman, arranged for Paul's release on the condition that he refunded the tickets and made a public admission of guilt, which he did happily. He was reunited with his family, and the nine days he spent in prison is allegedly the longest he had ever spent away from Linda. The whole tour was called off because of this event, and while Wings never made an official announcement of their separation, the band never played another show together again. Paul, though, workhorse that he is, kept working. He had started work already on a solo album where he played every single instrument called McCartney 2 kind of like McCartney 1, but 10 years later. The album was very strange, but honestly is responsible for a really good opening track coming up, as well as the best Christmas song ever written, Wonderful Christmas Time, and probably the weirdest song in Paul's entire catalog, and that's saying something, a song called Temporary Secretary. John Lennon was always keeping an ear out from Paul McCartney's releases, and he was usually pretty critical, though quite jealous of Paul's commercial success. In April of 1976, Paul McCartney and John Lennon were in the same room together for the last time of their lives. The pair were hanging out in the Dakota in New York City the same night that they almost showed up at the Saturday Night Live studio for a partial Beatles reunion. The two ended up partying, talking about old memories, music, and all around having a great time. Paul had such a good time that the next day he showed up at the Dakota and knocked on his old friend's door once again, hoping to hang out. 
but this time he didn't receive the warm welcome that he did the night before. John Lennon actually told him off and sent Paul away. John remembered the meeting later, saying, quote, That was a period when Paul just kept turning up at our door with a guitar. I would let him in, but finally I said to him, Please call before you come over. It's not 1956, and turning up at the door isn't the same anymore. You know, just give me a ring, unquote. Paul obviously left pretty hurt, but he had no idea that this would be the last time he'd ever see his oldest and closest friend. And while this was an awkward moment between the two of them, it's not like it led to this big great grudge or anything. I mean, they fought like brothers. They talked on the phone frequently, and half the time, it would end up in a huge fight, and one of them would hang up on the other. Had things turned out differently, there's just no way that Paul and John wouldn't have hung out again. I mean, John was even talking about collaborating with Paul again in 1980, just a few months before his death. Unfortunately, that never happened either. After the release of Extra Texture in 1975, George was in rough shape, and not because of his lackluster album reviews. He was gaunt, pale, and weak, his skin started to turn yellow, and he was losing more and more weight. At first, he wrote it off as food poisoning, but as his condition worsened, it became clear that this was much more serious and that he needed to go to a doctor. George was diagnosed with hepatitis B, a liver disease. George Harrison remembered the diagnosis, saying, quote, It was a culmination of all the monkey business I'd been doing. I think it was just the accumulation of those years where there were drugs in my life and those years of staying up all night and partying, unquote. George's hepatitis diagnosis actually pushed him to get healthier and end his near half-decade-long bender of booze and coke. Harrison said, quote, I needed hepatitis to quit drinking, unquote. While George didn't completely end his rock and roll lifestyle, he definitely doubled down on his absence from the public view and took a much more moderate approach to life. George's illness did delay his first album to his new record label, though, which turned out to be a bigger problem than the ex-Beatle was used to. After a two-month delay, A&M sued George Harrison for a breaching contract and the general disappointment of Dark Horse Records for $10 million. Dark Horse Records was in shambles mainly because George wasn't a businessman and he had a tendency to sign his friends and Indian musicians instead of scouting out new and -and up-and-coming talent. The dispute was settled out of court and it resulted in George leaving A&M for Warner Brothers, bringing the entire Dark Horse label with him. The album that George had been chipping away at, 33 and a third, was something pretty special too. Warner Brothers were impressed by the strong singles and upbeat nature of the album, a strong departure from the previous album style, which was pretty much just depressing and cocaine. George wrote much of the music on vacation in the Virgin Islands, and he was generally in a pretty good spot in his life. He was cured of hepatitis, and he's happily engaged to Olivia Arias, which explains the sunny and light-hearted tone of the whole album. The album's lead single, Crackerbox Palace, went on to be a top 20 hit in the U.S., and this song, which was a commentary on My Sweet Lord and that whole controversy, also got a decent amount of radio play. George was also singing and playing probably better than he ever had before. The slide guitar work on this album is just superb. In Pure Smokey, which is a tribute song to one of his favorite artists, Smokey Robinson, George sings with smoothness and soul, and he plays two really phenomenal slide guitar solos. George resurrected Beautiful Girl from the All Things Must Pass sessions and See Yourself about his experiences with LSD from the Sgt. Pepper period. He also blends a lot of genres on 33 and a third, mixing soul, blues, rock and roll, and reggae. The reviews for the album were excellent. People were thrilled at Harrison's writing, melodies, and lead guitar playing, and critics had generally 
been used to tearing him down, we're pretty much considering 33 and a third to be a really strong album and a success for George Harrison. George even thought pretty strongly about touring on 33 and a third in 1977, but opted to travel the world with Olivia instead. Fans, though, weren't nearly as excited. Like I said, uh, you know, sales for all Beatles records were kind of slumping. And maybe because this was Harrison's fourth album in four years, it didn't seem like people were rushing out to buy it. And the album did okay in the United States, but it was pretty much ignored in Harrison's home country of Britain. Whether or not this bothered George is unclear, but the release of 33 was the beginning of a pretty long break from music for George Harrison. George said in 1977 he, quote, never picked up a guitar, never even thought about it, and didn't really miss it, unquote. Instead, George Harrison focused on other interests and passions. He was a huge fan of Formula One racing, uh, and he was also pretty good friends with the comedians who made Monty Python, and he worked on a bunch of sketches and movies with them. Uh, George also spent more and more time with his family. In 1977, George's son, Danny Harrison, was born, and he married his girlfriend, Olivia Rias, the following year. In 1977 and the beginning of 1978, music wasn't really on George's radar. But towards the end of 1978, he started to assemble tracks for a new album. For years, George had been working alone, producing his own work, which is sort of a skill and a setback for artists. He decided that this time he wanted to work with a producer to help him make more contemporary music and to be a little more disciplined in the studio. The result was George's 1979 album titled simply George Harrison. The album was really well-liked by critics and fans, and sold well, especially due to the single in one of Harrison's most successful songs, Blow Away. George also wrote a gentle acoustic track, Dark Sweet Lady, as a tribute to his new wife, Olivia, and Faster, which is a riff-driven song about Formula One racer Jackie Stewart. He also took Not Guilty off the shelf and completed it. Uh, this was a song that he had started during the White Album sessions about his bandmate's disappointment with the whole Maharishi incident. Another song, Soft-Hearted Hannah, is about a mushroom trip that George took the previous year. George remembered the experience saying, quote, I hadn't had any psychedelic drugs for almost 10 years, so I thought maybe I should have it, just to see if it reminds me of anything. You have to be careful with mushrooms because they're so good. I nearly did myself in. I had too many. I fell over and left my body, hit my head on a piece of concrete, but they were great, unquote. 33 and a Third and George's self-titled 1979 album uh, were really transition albums for George Harrison. They marked a turn away from the serious, uh, spiritual, kind of dark and mysterious songs that he had been writing in the early 70s, and he struck more of a sunny, fun, lighthearted tone with these albums. This is the approach that George Harrison would take really for the rest of his career, and kind of marked his turn away from caring about pop music or making an effort to be in the charts. Instead, he really just wanted to make music that he liked, that his friends liked, and that you could listen to and maybe have a laugh about. And that's definitely the kind of music that George Harrison made on 33 and a Third and his 1979 album. The closest thing that ever came to a Beatles reunion was a really casual, impromptu performance at Eric Clapton and Patty Boyd's wedding in 1979. Where Harrison served as Clapton's best man, Paul, Ringo, and George got on stage and played a bunch of songs with Eric Clapton and Mick Jagger, including Get Back and Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. The performance was obviously a drunken mess, 
But John Lennon was reportedly pretty angry that he had been left out. Clapton remembered John calling him to complain that he never even got an invite to his old friend's wedding. Once again, the Beatles came pretty close to reuniting, but didn't quite get there. Lennon's return to his wife, Yoko Ono, didn't just mark the end of his last weekend, but it also began a period of prolonged absence from public life. In February of 1975, John finally put the finishing touches on his cover album and released it to surprising success. The album was a top 10 hit on both sides of the Atlantic, greatly aided by John's cover of Benny King's Stand By Me, which was a pretty big hit for him. It's now one of John's most recognizable songs. After some light promotion of this album, John completely vanished from the public eye for the next five years. This was due largely to the fact that when he reunited with Yoko, the couple pretty much immediately conceived a child. Yoko had experienced many miscarriages and she was in her 40s, so the pregnancy was pretty high risk and doctors told her to stay in bed as much as possible. John decided that he was going to take care of Yoko and make sure that her and the baby were healthy. Sean Ono Lennon was born on October 9th, 1975, on John's 35th birthday. John was pretty determined to give Sean the father uh, that he never had and he had never been for Julian, so a lot of his time and energy was spent taking care of Sean. In 1976, John finally won his years-long immigration battle and was awarded a U.S. green card. He used this opportunity to travel. He went to Japan with Yoko and Sean. He flew to Hong Kong, where he partied with David Bowie and Iggy Pop. And he took an interest in sailing and sailed around the Caribbean and Bermuda. He also loved returning to New York City and hearing the customs agent saying, Welcome home, Mr. Lennon. One thing John didn't do, though, was release music. Other than a compilation of already released music, no new singles nor albums were released for five years. He didn't give a single interview, and the only press photos of him were the occasional snapshot of him walking with Sean and Yoko in New York. John wasn't a recluse, though. I mean, his apartment at the Dakota was huge, and he often had company, or he was traveling to one of his vacation homes in Long Island or Bermuda. John said in 1980, quote, The illusion that I was cut off from society is a joke. I was just the same as any of the rest of you. I was working from 9 to 5, baking bread and changing some nappies and dealing with the baby. People keep asking, why did you go underground? Why are you hiding? But I wasn't hiding. I've been everywhere in the bloody universe, and I did fairly average things. I went to the movies, unquote. And that is the narrative of John's life in this period, primarily pushed by John and Yoko, that John spent the years from 1975 to 1980 as a stay-at-home dad, baking bread, doing dishes, changing diapers, without a care in the world for his old life. But of course, with everything John Lennon says, you have to take it with a grain of salt. In fact, many reports indicate that this period wasn't as blissful uh, for John as he later described it, that he actually spent a lot of it depressed, sometimes even suicidal. He was drugged out a lot of the time, with a pretty severe case of writer's block, and he's really envious of his old uh, show business counterparts like Mick Jagger, Bob Dylan, Paul McCartney. His famous retreat from public life and his distancing uh, from his old friends wasn't entirely on his terms, but... A lot of people speculate it was part of Yoko's condition for getting back together. She didn't necessarily want to go back to the old life married to famous Beatle pop star John Lennon. This was made pretty clear by some of his friends. Maypang remembers the day when John Lennon moved out. Mick Jagger came by to hang out with John, who he was pretty close to during this period. Pang said, quote, 
Mick had rung up looking for him. I remember his reaction when I told him John had gone back to Yoko. There was a long pause, and then Mick said, I guess I've just lost a friend, unquote. Mick Jagger later clarified the comment, saying, quote, When John went back to Yoko, he went into hibernation. He was living close to where I was living in New York City, but I was probably considered one of the bad influences, so I was never allowed to see him after that, unquote. George Harrison, who from time to time visited John Lennon at the Dakota, said, quote, I always got an overpowering feeling from him, almost a feeling that he wanted to say much more than he could, or than he did. You could see it in his eyes. It was almost like he was crying out to tell me certain things, or to renew things, relationships, but he wasn't able to, because of the situation he was in, unquote. Now, John Lennon obviously had agency, and his old buddies probably have certain views of Yoko and her role in John's behavior that is probably not always true. It's not fair to blame Yoko, and there's certainly a lot of truth to the baking bread and raising Sean narrative. I mean, John definitely was preoccupied as a new father. But it's also naive to think that John's relationship with Ono or her influence on him wasn't at least a factor on the break in his career. Or that John's personal life and marriage were as perfect as sometimes made it seem in his songs. It actually took a pretty traumatic experience to push John back into the music business. John was sailing with his son and a team of sailors from Rhode Island to Bermuda when a pretty bad storm hit and caused the entire crew to work extremely hard to navigate the sailboat safely through the waters. After a few hours, the crew was exhausted and John was told by the captain to take over steering so some of the crew members could get some sleep. After being taught how, John sailed through the storm for hours, with the life of the small crew and his son all on the ship. When they finally arrived to Bermuda, John was so refreshed, and he had a new zest about him, and he decided that he had to start really writing again and getting back into the studio because it was what he was meant to do. Lennon experienced a sort of creative burst during this period. He said, quote, I was so centered after the experience at sea that I was tuned into the cosmos, and all these songs came after five years of nothing, not trying, but nothing coming anyway, no inspiration, no thought, no anything, then suddenly voom, 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 unquote. In Bermuda, John wrote Beautiful Boy, which was a song celebrating his love for his young son, Sean Lennon, and Watching the Wheels, which is pretty much John's autobiographical account of the past five years of his life outside of the music industry. He also wrote I'm Losing You about the troubles in his marriage to Yoko. Uh, he kept calling Yoko Ono and she wouldn't answer the phone, possibly because she was struggling on and off with heroin addiction. John also wrote Woman while lounging around by the beach in Bermuda. It's a song about Yoko and about all women and what they do for men. John Lennon said that women are, quote, the other half of the sky, unquote, which he dedicated the song to. When back in New York, John continued writing and Yoko contacted some producers to help them record an album. John also felt, finally, after the punk movement, that Yoko's vocal style might actually be appreciated by the general public, and he decided to make an album with Yoko once again, like he did on Sometime in New York City. Yoko added half of the album's 14 songs, and some of them, like Kiss 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 and I'm Moving On, are pretty strong songs. When the album was finally mixed and ready to be released, John had to sign a recording contract, which he gave to David Geffen's Geffen Records. In October of 1980, John decided to release the album's first single, Just Like Starting Over, which was not only about him and Yoko's marriage, but also about his relationship with his fans. 
Now, John was really nervous about releasing his first single in five years, but the single actually was a pretty triumphant return for John Lennon, and it became a top 10 hit. The album, titled Double Fantasy, was released on November 17, 1980. And while it wasn't all as well received as John would have liked, people generally seemed to like the album, and they were really happy that John Lennon was back in the business. John was really happy to be back, too. His friend and photographer Bob Gruen remembered the final days of John's life, just how happy he was. Gruen said, quote, He was going to put a new band together and go back on the road. He seemed to have such a positive vision and a sense of hope for the future. He was about to come back with the conclusions to all of his screaming and his searching and his wandering and his therapies. He discovered that he could be grounded with his family and sober and still put out a message people could relate to. He seems finally to understand what it was to be alive and to be a leader in the sense that he could think and express what everyone else was feeling, unquote. John spent the final weeks uh, of his life promoting his album, sitting down with Playboy, Newsweek, Rolling Stone, doing hours of interviews where he talked about everything from his life, his upbringing, his offense that George Harrison hadn't mentioned him enough in Uh, his 1980 autobiography, his disdain for Bob Dylan's new album. I mean, some of the best interviews that John Lennon did in his entire life were in this, you know, three-week period between the release of Double Fantasy and his death. Uh, He also caught up with some old friends. In November 1980, he saw Ringo Starr for the last time at a dinner that turned into a five-hour party. He also had his last conversation with Paul McCartney, which was about baking bread, and the two had a really pleasant, friendly chat. Not about business, no drama, just friends catching up. Two days before his death, John called his Aunt Mimi to tell her the exciting news that he was planning on coming home to Britain to see her and maybe even tour. This is what makes the next part of the podcast so depressing, really, because nobody had any idea what was about to happen. And John Lennon was just kind of getting back into things and taking his first big strides in the music industry again. On December 8th, 1980, John got breakfast with Yoko, and he got a haircut. He got the Teddy Boy style that he used to get in the 1950s. He then did a photo shoot with Rolling Stone's Annie Leibovitz, which was going to be the cover of Rolling Stone magazine to promote uh, John Lennon's comeback album. After the shoot, John and Yoko walked downstairs to catch a ride back to the studio where they were finishing up some work on the singles, and on his way down he was stopped by a fan who wanted an autograph. The fan was holding a copy of Double Fantasy and the most recent Playboy magazine uh, with the John Lennon interview, and he asked John to sign both. John happily obliged and even asked the fan if he needed anything else before getting into his car and driving away. John was usually very nice to fans, and this time was no different. He really liked interacting, talking to them, and taking photos and signing whatever they wanted to sign. Now, John thought nothing of this encounter, just another autograph session with a fan. But this supposed fan was actually the man that would kill him later that night. The killer was a chubby security guard from Hawaii, who was later diagnosed as psychotic. And many people have concluded that the killer was dead set on becoming famous, which was his primary motive, other than his mental state. The killer was obsessed with the Beatles, and he was also obsessed with J.D. Salinger's novel, The Catcher in the Rye. He felt a deep connection to the novel's main character, who had in the book uh, this deep hatred for so-called phonies in society. 
The killer for some time had been fixated on celebrities, none more than John Lennon, and allegedly began planning the murder of John Lennon three months in advance. People who knew this man claimed that he was particularly enraged by John's lyrics about God and sometimes accused John Lennon of being a communist. On the morning of December 8th, uh, the killer, armed with a handgun and a copy of Catcher in the Rye, waited in front of the Dakota all day for John Lennon. At one point, he even went up to John Lennon's son, Sean, shook his hand, and quoted John's song, Beautiful Boy, which is just so deeply disturbing. He then saw John and got his autograph, uh, and when John left, the killer just waited outside the Dakota for John to return. John and Yoko returned to the Dakota around 10.50 p.m. on the night of December 8th. John got out of his limousine first, uh, Yoko right behind him, and he walked straight past the killer. And he got within a few feet of the Dakota's entrance when he was shot four times in the back with bullets hitting him in the shoulder, the neck, and the lung. John was bleeding profusely from his wounds and from his mouth, and he could only walk a few steps before collapsing on the ground in the reception area where the staff accosted the killer and called the police. Uh, John was briefly conscious when the medics arrived, but he lost consciousness, and the resuscitation attempt at the hospital failed. And at 11.07 p.m. on December 8th, 1980, John Lennon was pronounced dead. While John was rushed to the hospital, uh, his killer was at the scene of the crime, just reading The Catcher in the Rye, which he also said was his written legal testimony in his defense. When the police arrived, he immediately admitted to the crime and turned himself in, uh, and he showed pretty much no remorse at all. I mean, he's obviously, he was obviously a seriously disturbed human being. He was later sentenced to 20 years to life, uh, and he remains in jail to this day, having been denied parole several times. The news of John Lennon's murder sent a shockwave through the world. His album sales shot up. The Beatles sales shot up. Uh, it seemed like pretty much all over the world, he and the Beatles were topping the charts in a show of support and love for his music and his legacy. Fans all over the world held vigils and wrote to Yoko and the Beatles. It was just so bewildering to people that someone like John Lennon, who most famously sang about love and peace and fun, was hunted down and murdered in such a terrible and creepy and violent way. I mean, no single person had been the cause of so much public grief since really the assassination of maybe John F. Kennedy or Martin Luther King Jr. For Yoko, she lost a husband and a father to her child. Yoko said a few days after the murder, quote, We had talked about living until we were 80. We even drew up lists of all the things we could do together for all those years, unquote. Yoko's public statement read, quote, I love you, I miss you, you're with God, I'll do what I said. Yoko, hold on, I'll make sure, I promise, XX, unquote. For Paul, Ringo, and George, they had lost their brother, really. They all dealt with John's death in different ways, and 
Uh, it caused the three of them to collaborate for the first time in years, recording All Those Years Ago, a tribute song to John. And uh, they also recorded a few of John's demos, Real Love and Free as a Bird, in the 1990s. And they knew better than anyone that a world without John Lennon meant a world without the Beatles. People always ask the Beatles if they ever expected how big they would become. I think it's a really silly question because what happened to the Beatles was literally unprecedented. They started out as a few guys who wanted to play music and they thought if they succeeded beyond their wildest dreams, they might have a record, um, they might you know, play some concerts, they might even get famous. The level of fame, though, and appreciation associated with the Beatles simply didn't exist at the time. I mean, it, it literally would have been crazy if you said, oh, do you think people will be like listening to your music all over the world in 55 years? I mean, that would have been crazy. Uh, I mean, it would have been crazy to imagine that they were going to spawn this pop cultural industry. Um, it would have been absolutely unbelievable if you told them that they weren't going to be able to walk down the street without getting chased by an angry mob of teenage girls. And they could have never imagined that they would become so famous that people would try to kill them. I always say that pop culture is still reeling from Beatlemania and that we're always trying to recreate it, whether it's with, um, you know, the Rolling Stones or with Justin Bieber or with One Direction. We're always trying to create the next Beatles. And in rock and roll and pop music more generally, there was a world before the Beatles and there was a world after the Beatles. And that's why I wanted to start Rock Band's podcast with the history of the Beatles. Because the Beatles are and forever will be the greatest rock and roll band in history. Thank you so much for listening to Rock Band's podcast. I just want to thank everyone once again for all the support uh, and for everyone who listened to every episode. Uh, and I'm so excited to keep the history of rock and roll going with the history of the Rolling Stones next season. So please make sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Follow us on Instagram at Rock Bands Podcast. And make sure to share us with all of your rock and roll loving friends. Thank you so much. Until next time, listen to the Beatles. <laughs>